You look around your business and see inefficiency everywhere. So you should know these numbers. 37,000, the number of businesses which have upgraded to the number one cloud financial system, NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite just turned 25. That's 25 years of helping businesses streamline their finances and reduce costs. One, because your unique business deserves a customized solution, and that's NetSuite. Learn more when you download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist absolutely free at netsuite.com GPS. That's netsuite.com GPS. This episode is brought to you by Stitch Fix. Love trying new fashion trends, but find it all a little intimidating? With Stitch Fix, refreshing your wardrobe has never been easier. They figured out the new 2024 trends, so you don't have to. Just give your stylist your size, style, and budget preferences, and they'll send you five just-for-you pieces, plus outfit recommendations and pro styling advice. Refresh your 2024 wardrobe now and get started today at stitchfix.com. This is GPS, the global public square. Welcome to all of you in the United States and around the world. I'm Fareed Zakaria. Today on the show. Oh, I think we have a vote coming in. A remarkable day in America. Article one is adopted. For only the third time in history, a president of the United States is impeached. How does this one differ? And how does it look to historians? I will talk to John Meacham, Timothy Naftali, and Annette Gordon-Reed. And Iran has weathered what some have called its most significant protests since 1979. But have the protesters been silenced for good? I will talk to the Iranian activist in exile, Mazi Ali Najad. Also, a good news story for this holiday season. This husband and wife won the Nobel Prize in Economics together. And their groundbreaking work is on alleviating poverty. Will extreme poverty soon become a thing of the past? Stay tuned. But first, here's my take. Impeachment is big news, justifiably so. But the battle cries around it have drowned out another momentous event with important lessons for the 2020 campaign, last week's seismic British elections. The simplest way to understand the UK results is to look at one fact. Even though the Conservatives ended up with their largest majority in Parliament since 1987, the overall vote for the party went up from 2017 by just one percentage point. The Labour Party, however, dropped from 2017 by eight points, a collapse of historic proportions. Labour ended up with its fewest seats in 84 years. There are several reasons for Labour's collapse. The party was led by Jeremy Corbyn, who is a dour, uncharismatic radical and has been dogged by accusations of anti-Semitism. His opponent, Boris Johnson, is colourful and lively, having been a popular mayor of London. But Johnson's victory was paved by more than personality. It had to do with two strategic decisions that were risky but paid off. Johnson clarified and simplified the election, making it a referendum on Brexit. He purged his party of moderates on this issue and said to the public, vote Tory to get Brexit done. Three words. Labour's position on Brexit was, by contrast, totally muddled. In politics, a simple, clear message will always trump a complex, murky one. 
Remember, build the wall, three words. Johnson's second strategic decision was to shift the Conservative Party's positions on economic policy. Under David Cameron and Theresa May, the Tories had been cutting spending through a sweeping set of austerity measures. Johnson junked all that, promising to increase government spending on everything from the National Health Service to schools to potholes. That second bet worked spectacularly. The Conservatives won over large swaths of the working class, voters who might have shared the Tories' skepticism about Europe, but who could never vote for a party whose economic message was resolutely free market. In 2016, Trump similarly campaigned as an economic populist, embracing left-wing positions on trade, social security, and Medicare. He was able to gain working-class votes in Democratic states while keeping traditional Republican voters with him. The Trump Republican Party is now a coalition of free market types and working-class populists. There's a tension between the two groups, but polarization and party loyalty are so great that there appears to be little danger that traditional Republicans will abandon Trump for a Democrat. Now, the Democrats have a larger base than Britain's Labour Party, but because of the Electoral College, they face the same vulnerability, losing socially conservative working-class voters in a number of crucial states. And they're doing little to address this vulnerability. Democrats keep arguing over economic policy, lurching ever leftward, but the public is largely supportive of the party's existing positions on these issues, allow people to buy into Medicare, fix America's infrastructure, tax the rich a bit more, increase the minimum wage. The party's Achilles heel is immigration. Half of the Democratic candidates have said they want to decriminalize illegal border crossings, and even more want to give undocumented immigrants free health care. Large majorities of the country disagree with these policies, and you can expect Trump to turn this into a wedge issue. The irony, thus, is that the Republican Party, like the Tories, has become ideologically a bigger tent party, while the Democrats, historically defined as a large coalition, are ideologically narrow on the issues that might well define the 2020 election. For more, go to CNN.com slash Fareed and read my Washington Post column this week. And let's get started. February 24th, 1868, Andrew Johnson. December 19th, 1998, Bill Clinton. December 18th, 2019, Donald Trump. These are the three impeachments of American presidents. I wanted to put this week's events in a historical context. Joining me to do that are three historians who have studied presidents who have been impeached or almost impeached. Annette Gordon-Reed is a professor of American legal history at Harvard Law School and the author of many books. The most pertinent one is simply called Andrew Johnson. Tim Naftali was the director of the Richard Nixon Presidential Library. Today, he's a professor at NYU and a CNN presidential historian. And John Meacham is a historian, biographer, and a contributing editor at Time. He's written the introduction to a new book called The Impeachment Report that details the House Intelligence Committee's investigation that led, in part, to this impeachment. Tim, when we look at impeachment, we sort of think it doesn't seem to be working right now. But then when you go back and think about, you know, I mean, the Clinton or suddenly Andrew Johnson, it, it's, it, it's always seems somewhat messy, even, even yes. broken. Why? Well, it's very hard to impeach a president. 
um, the gold center, I think, for an impeachment process is what happened in 1974. And there you had clear and convincing evidence of the president's involvement in a criminal conspiracy. In addition, you had a lot of evidence about the president's abuse of power. And even then, the Republican leadership was putting pressure on Republicans on the Judiciary Committee not to vote against the president. One of the differences today is that in addition to those historical obstacles to impeachment and removal, we have, a, we have for the first time in history, two parties sharing control of Congress. Never ha- it's never happened before in an impeachment crisis. In every previous impeachment crisis, the same party has controlled both houses of Congress. That's one reason why we've never seen the House retain the Articles of of impeachment to put pressure on the Senate to determine the rules of the trial. Right. Because in, in Nixon, it was both houses were Democratic. In Clinton, both houses were Republican. Republican. And in Andrew Johnson, both houses were one party. One party, Republican. National <laughs> Union, yeah. however you want to describe it. So, so this, this kind of uh, political gamesmanship has never had to happen before. And as Americans, we like to play political games, sadly, even in impeachment crises. So that's something new, and that's a wrinkle to add even more room for politics yeah. in this case. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, when you, we look at the Andrew Johnson trial, it, I mean, Andrew Johnson was a terrible guy, a well, yes. vicious racist, yes. but what he was impeached for is now generally seen as, you know, not right. I mean, he was basically impeached for firing his own Secretary of Defense, something mm-hmm. presidents are allowed to do. How, how to think about that impeachment? Was it a mistake? Was it a process gone gone awry? Well, I don't think it was a mistake. Uh, we look at the Tenure of Office Act, which is the, the violation of that that prompted the impeachment. But there were other things. He was a recalcitrant president. He was, in fact, not executing the laws. He was, as you said, a vicious racist. His whole purpose was to make... He said that this is a white man's government, and as long as I'm president, it's going to be a white man's government. So all of the things that he was doing in opposition to the so-called radical Republicans was in service of that ideal. I mean, the the Tenure of Office Act eventually was declared unconstitutional, but it was the law at the time, and he broke it. And it was definitely the ultimate partisan kind of thing. But even from the very, very beginning, Alexander Hamilton suggested or knew that this would be a political process and that partisanship should be, would enter into it. But the hope was that the Senate, the body that was supposed to be the the higher chamber, would be measured and, um, you know, sort of measured and, and actually have the country's best interest in heart in actually dealing with the matter. So the Johnson one was a tricky one. After Civil War, after the death of a, of a president, it was a, a unique kind of time, and it separates it from where we are right now. John Meacham, um, when we look at it now, it seems obvious that you're going to have these parties that are going to line up with their president or against. Um, but in a way, impeachment was set up by founders who really didn't think we would have a party system. I and mean, you wrote this magisterial biography of Jefferson when the party system sort of begins to emerge. Does having political parties make a kind of impartial impeachment process impossible? Well, it's never going to be impartial because it's a human undertaking. I think that's one of the things we have to remember is the founders were attempting, as Woodrow Wilson once observed, to create a kind of Newtonian system of government. There would be a music of the spheres. There would be this uh, harmonious whole. When, in fact, 
this is a more Darwinian system. Uh, it's a struggle of all against all, and you hope we evolve. Uh, we hope we progress. Uh, jury's still out on that. But it's a the tension within the Republican, lowercase r, structure was present from the beginning. Uh, Madison, Jefferson, Washington, Hamilton, I don't think would have foreseen the absolute nature of this party structure, but they fully understood faction. They fully understood that there would be coalitions of interests that would fight against each other. What they hoped for by dividing sovereignty so definitively, and we're seeing it right now, uh, they borrowed that from, there was an Aristotelian line of thought. Uh, They took it more directly from Montesquieu. Madison had uh, made a study of Montesquieu at at Princeton and then uh, later at Montpelier in the months before the uh, Constitutional Convention. And what they saw was that we had to make things incredibly difficult to do because we were, as human beings, more likely to do the wrong thing than the right thing. And the fruits of that system, however uh, frustrating they might be to one side or the other at a given moment, is something we're seeing right now. You know, Tim, you mentioned something that basically most of, most of the processes have been seen as tarnished except Nixon's, but you pointed out Clear and convincing evidence is what did it. Uh, until the tapes, until people knew that they had on record the yes. voice of the president actually speaking of a criminal conspiracy, Republicans were not not willing to vote against Nixon. It they, was really the tapes that did. It's the it's actually without the tapes, you wouldn't have even had an impeachment process. One thing to keep in mind is that um, people talked about impeachment after the Senate Watergate hearings. And by the way, to remind everyone, the Senate Watergate hearings give you John Dean's testimony that says the president, at the very least, learned about a criminal conspiracy in 1973. You learned that the president had a taping system. You learned more about the dirty tricks. You, you learned that there was, there was a stench rising from the administration. Even after that, Democrats didn't want, the leadership didn't want an impeachment process. It's when Nixon fires the special prosecutor to prevent access to his tapes that not only Democrats, but Republicans say we at least have to start an inquiry, an impeachment inquiry. I believe without the tapes, Richard Nixon, A, would never have been impeached. The process wouldn't have started. And B, he never would have left office before the end of his term. That sets a very high bar for how you impeach someone using, using a broad, the sort of broad theory of impeachment. When we come back, more on impeachment. John Meacham has some startling statistics on how it actually isn't that risky to be courageous. And we are back talking about impeachment and its legacy in American history with Annette Gordon-Reed, Tim Naftali, and John Meacham. Annette, when you look at the impeachment today, um, does it seem to you that it is deeply more partisan than before, that there is something special and different this time? Well, other than what was said before about the fact that you have two different parties who are involved in this process, the partisan, the Johnson time was incredibly partisan. We'd just come off a civil war. 700,000 people had died in a battle about a vision of America. And so this was a very, very partisan time. And people saw this as a matter of life and death to figure out how you were going to bring 4 million African-Americans into citizenship. So it was a very, very partisan time. This is different because of social media, uh, the development of, a, of the strong development of a, of a party system that 
takes in people through social media. It's just a different, the technology of all of it is different. But I think the passions and the partisanship were there in all of the ones that we've seen. I'm often struck by how some of the heroes of the Watergate uh, hearing, Sam Irwin, for example, mm -hmm. I mean, these are all basically Southern segregationists. Oh, yes, absolutely, and they become heroes. I was down in Texas as a kid watching this with my grandparents, and yep, that voice and that the, the accent you sort of signaled one particular thing. But we were kind of on his side because he actually was a person who saw himself as upholding the Constitution, you know, despite how whatever he felt about Nixon, he believed in the process. Um, John, you have some something interesting you, you were telling me about... Um, the idea of Republicans, for example, finding the courage to put country above party, that historically when, when people have, when senators, mm -hmm. congressmen have put country above party, they have not paid the political price that, that many people think they, ha they, they, they fear they would. It's remarkable when you look at the data on the high, uh, the high profile votes really beginning in the modern era, which I would date from 64 and 65, the Civil Rights Act, uh, the Voting Rights Act, the Immigration Act of 1965. If you look at Republicans who voted for Medicare and Medicaid, uh, if you look at Southern Democrats, like uh, you mentioned in that ethos of, of, of Irvin from North Carolina, if you look at the Southern Democrats who voted for the Civil Rights Act, uh, you see that those who sought reelection tend to win, uh, almost universally. And then you would say, well, but that means they preemptively retire or so there's some other factor. Actually, no, that uh, the political science on this is, is pretty clear. The Republicans who voted against the Iraq War resolution in 2003, 2004, 2002, 2003, all, all won re-election. Uh, Republicans who voted for the assault weapons ban, who voted for the Brady Bill, won re-election. And so there's a piece of conventional wisdom, which is if you cross the aisle, you're politically dead. One of the things we have to look at is, are there actually facts to support that? Now, I've never run for office. I've never faced voters, so I, it's easy for me to say. But when you look back at the people who decided to defy their party's basic conventional wisdom, you find that their political futures were not automatically uh, pushed to the side. Um, one of the things that I wonder, Tim, about all this is, uh, you, you know, you have this extraordinary cavalcade of administration officials, Trump's own officials, saying, look, we were pressing the Ukrainian government, we were trying to get this quid pro quo, um, which seems to me pretty compelling. I mean, otherwise, they were all simultaneously deluded. I mean, you know, you had dozens of American officials trying to press the Ukrainian government and, you know, the Republican defense, as I understand, it was all a misunderstanding. Trump <laughs> never wanted this. Um, but it is about Ukraine. Um, I mean, is that part of the problem here? Well, uh, two things. First of all, this is the first time we've had an impeachment based on misconduct in foreign policy. Mm -hmm. Foreign policy is a very esoteric uh, part of our government. Most Americans, uh, understandably, don't have time to think about foreign policy. And if they do, it's in a, in a very emotional way. They think about security. Will we be attacked? This was not an issue about Russia or Ukraine attacking the United States. There's a second issue here, which is that you have two theories of impeachment. One is the broad theory, which, which is an understanding of a, a threat to our constitutional system, which does not necessarily involve a violation of the law, and a, a very narrow theory, which is that President should, be should not be removed except for 
criminal violations, um, bribery and treason being two of them. Uh, the argument this ca- in this time is the same as the second article against Nixon. It's an abuse of power. That's a broad theory of impeachment. Making that argument on foreign policy, to which most Americans don't have an emotional attachment, is really hard. That's not to say you shouldn't make it. There's a constitutional obligation on the part of the Article I Institution Congress to defend the constitutional system. But it's much harder when it's on the basis of an abuse of power connected to foreign policy. Makes, makes a lot of sense. Thank you all. Fascinating conversation. Next on GPS, which do you think will have a bigger effect on Donald Trump's chances for re-election? Impeachment or the state of the economy on election day? Stay tuned and we will explore the great power of the wallet in elections around the world. Now for our What in the World segment. For everyone breathlessly following the Democratic primary, I have some potentially deflating news. If the economy holds up through next year, a number of forecasting models that have worked well historically project that President Trump will be re-elected. The reason is simple. Americans usually vote on the economy, and the American economy is doing well. People are making money. But let me show you an important exception to the economy rule. India. In the second quarter of this fiscal year, GDP growth slowed to just 4.5%, the lowest in more than six years. Consumer spending has fallen dramatically. But as the Carnegie Endowment's Milan Vaishnav writes in Foreign Affairs, something strange has accompanied these trends. Even as the economy has turned down, Modi, the prime minister, remains popular. He sailed to a second term in May with an even bigger mandate than the one he garnered five years earlier. Opinion polls show that his approval ratings today continue to be high. There are a number of reasons why voters might not be inclined to punish Modi for the economy. Perhaps they understand that India's economic problems predate him. But the question remains, how does he remain so popular as the economy keeps faltering? Ruchir Sharma notes in his book, Democracy on the Road, unlike Americans, Indians don't primarily vote based on the economy. He finds that from 1990 to 2019, 32 Indian state leaders had delivered economic growth of 8% or more in their first terms, but 53% of the time, they've lost their re-election bid. That's because the economy gets dwarfed among a raft of other concerns, perhaps most prominently, culture and identity. And that is where Modi, a self-avowed Hindu nationalist, has proved an extremely effective leader. He's pursued the politics and policies of unmistakable sectarianism. Legendary or notorious for having presided over the state government of Gujarat when it experienced a wave of massive anti-Muslim riots, massacres, and pogroms, he has never apologized for those events. On the eve of the last election, Modi seized on an act of terror to accuse the opposition of being pro-Pakistan, a charge which he had to know would rouse anti-Muslim sentiment in the country. The latest is the Citizenship Amendment Act, which critics say violates the secular nature of India's constitution by specifying for the first time a religious basis for granting citizenship to migrants. Though this policy was pushed through in his second term, Modi was never shy about signaling his intent. His re-election was at least in part a mandate for his party's cultural agenda. So a focus on that agenda, while bad for India's foundational principle of diversity, might be good for Modi as a politician. And that might be true 
for more than just India. After all, Donald Trump ran the last time around by sounding the alarm against Mexicans. They're bringing drugs. The Chinese. China. And Muslims. Radical Islamic terrorism. We may be in an age where for many voters, culture trumps economics. Next on GPS, last month Iran saw what some call its most significant protest since the 1979 revolution that toppled the Shah. What happened to the protests? Where did the protesters go? Stay tuned. Iran's President Rouhani announced earlier this week that his nation was testing new advanced centrifuges that would allow it to enrich uranium at a faster pace. This is yet another step away from the terms of the 2015 nuclear deal. But Iran is not only at odds with the outside world, it is facing considerable internal dissent. Last month, protests all over the country constituted what the New York Times called its worst unrest since the 1979 revolution that toppled the Shah. But the crackdown against the protest was also historic in its force. A U.S. official says as many as a thousand people may have died. What is next for the opposition? Let me bring in Masi Alinajad, an Iranian activist in exile. Masi, one of the things you've been able to do is to get a lot of the videos that people were sending out, even though there were internet bans and such. So from what you can tell from those, in, those internet um, um, uh, recordings, what is going on now? Um, you know, I have to say the level of crackdown was unbelievable. So that's why the government actually managed to push people back home. But trust me, they are preparing to get back to the street because the anger is there. You know, in three days, only three days, massacre happened. So that is why people right now, they got back home, but they are angry. They are fed up with these government. The main thing that I am hearing from people, especially I'm being in touch with the family of those people who lost their beloved one, the family of prisoners, they are looking for an occasion to get back to the street. This, the Islamic Republic has been very clever in using a mixture of patronage and repression and has been able to survive. Um, do you think it will be able to survive these protests? I don't think so. This time, let me, let me just give you an example. A woman, a young woman sent me a video in the middle of crackdown. She was filming two people got killed in front of her eyes. And she was talking on the video saying that, I cannot believe it myself that they are killing people. She got back home. She sent me the video. And what she said to me, it's your answer. She said that, Massey, I'm going to uh, go back to the street again. I, I don't understand why I'm fearless. The reason is this, because I saw the fear in the eyes of security forces. So for 40 years, we, the people of Iran, have been you know, scared of them. Now they are scared of the people. Um, let me ask you about your own movement um, and your own story. You, you tr you've started a movement. Sure. The movement that I started was about compulsory hijab. A lot of people might say that, why? Middle East has so many bigger problems. Why you care so much about small piece of cloth? But I want to say that compulsory hijab, forced hijab, it's the main pillar of a, a religious dictatorship, you know? Compulsory hijab, it's, it's something that the government used to control the whole society. So when I move, uh, you know, started the movement, uh, My Selfie Freedom and then White Wednesday's campaign, I didn't know, I didn't actually expect that it's going to go beyond compulsory hijab. This, in Iran protest, 
I was receiving videos from women who were actually before joining White Wednesday's movement. And what are White Wednesday's experience? Yeah, White Wednesday's movement actually, it's a platform where women wear a white symbol or take off a white headscarf and walking unveiled in public, which is a punishable crime. And right now, there are six women received altogether 109 years prison sentence. Just for not wearing the hijab. Just for not wearing a job. What's happened to your family who live in Iran? They did anything, anything to keep me silent, to punish me, Farid. From the beginning, they said that I was raped by three men, which was a big lie. But in their mindset, it means if you're a woman and you get raped, it's your fault. Then they wanted to keep me silent. That didn't work. Then they went after my, my family. They brought my sister on Iranian national television to disown me publicly. Like, I was watching 20 minutes show. My sister was disowning me publicly. 20 minutes on Iranian national television. They went to my mother, my 70-year-old mother, who wears hijab, you know? She has nothing to do with my campaign, but they interrogated her for two hours to keep me silent. I didn't. And then... On July, the, the head of Revolutionary Court went on Iranian national television, a cleric, saying that any woman who sends videos to Massey will be charged up to 10 years prison. So the government find out that they cannot keep me silent. They went after my brother. So they arrested my brother in front of his two small children. They handcuffed him, blindfolded him. It is called hostage taking because he has nothing to do with my campaign or he was not involved in political activities. They arrested him to punish me, to break me. I don't want to keep silent. And I don't want to show them that they're going to win if they punish me by arresting my family. Well, you are definitely not broken. Sure. Pleasure to have you on, Master. Thank you so much for having me. Next on GPS, a feel-good story, sort of, as we enter the peak of the holiday period. The world has made great strides toward ending poverty. My next guest a husband and wife who just won the Nobel Prize in Economics together are making even more progress possible when we come back. The World Bank defines extreme poverty as living on less than $1.90 per day. I'm quite sure your morning coffee or tea costs considerably more than that. But there's great news on this front. In 1981, 42% of the world's population was living in extreme poverty. Today, it is just 10%. And if my next guests continue their groundbreaking work, that number could get close to zero. Esther Duflo and Abhijit Banerjee are husband and wife team. They are also joint winners of this year's Nobel Prize in Economics, along with Michael Kramer. We recently had a chance to talk about their prize-winning work. Abhijit Banerjee, Esther Duflo, pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. So the first thing I got to ask you is, um, what is it like to be uh, married and simultaneously win the Nobel Peace, uh, Nobel Economics Prize? Uh, I suppose it's two good things for the price of one. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but did it at the time it happened? What I noticed was there were a few headlines that said things like, and there was this one that said, Indian American uh, MIT professor Abhijit Banerjee and wife wins the Nobel Prize with the... T <laughs> what did you think when you... I mean, then there were a few more like that. So I didn't have time to get offended because the French press said Esther Duflo and two people, including husband, win <laughs> the right. economics prize. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
what what's fascinating about your work is that there are so many things to talk about, but I want to start by talking about uh, the fact that you upend one of the kind of central assumptions of economics. Economics is about economic man or woman, a rational man or woman, and the basic idea is um, we all as human beings respond to economic incentives. If you pay us more money, we work. If you don't pay us, you don't. And your work basically says, actually, when you observe it, that's not true. Give me, expand on this. Well, I mean, there are many versions of this. For example, I think the one that's politically perhaps the most salient is rich people, unless you give them like huge tax breaks, they're going to take a vacation. There's absolutely no evidence for it. And it's hard to even imagine that like, you know, somebody like Bill Gates suddenly going on vacation. I don't think he could do it if he tried, actually. So I don't think there is any evidence that corporate tax cuts are necessary to get growth or whatever the other myths that are there. I mean, on the other end, the poor, I mean, there's this story that if you give them free money, they're going to retire. And again, no evidence for it. They seem to be, you know, if anything, some, some of the, especially in developing countries, there's evidence that if you give them money, they may actually be cheered up and might actually work a little harder. So, and you, and one of the methods that you really have pioneered is this idea of like going in and observing what people do, tinkering with some of the things, you know, you give one, you do one thing for one group and one thing for another group. What does it reveal with, in terms of this, of this idea that we are all bound by economic incentives? Yes, so one, for example, one series of experiments, not just one, but maybe a dozen experiments that revealed very much that the poor don't get discouraged from working when they receive uh, free money, is a series of cash transfers programs that have happened now all over the world, in Latin America, in uh, even in the US uh, for a while. So the uh, people get some money as long as their kids go to school and they get the basic immunization and other uh, preventive care services for their children. So one can then look at what happened to the people who get the money and the people who right. don't. And they are strictly equivalent because they were chosen randomly to receive or not to receive. And across all of these experiments, you never see a difference in the probability that people are working or in how many hours they work. If anything, whenever you see a small difference, uh, it's actually the people who receive money work a little more. You also work in some of the poorest parts of the world. You work in a part of India that um, is, is pretty poor. What is the, is there a simple answer to the question of, you know, what, what does one do about that kind of extreme poverty? Is there, you know, for a, poor, for a government that doesn't have the resources of the United States? Well, I think, in, in our book, we make the case that it's probably that is exactly where you may want to go for something like universal basic income, maybe a kind of ultra basic income, not really very much. But the government's attempt to kind of help the poor has always been a little bit colored with, by this idea that if you give them free money, there'll be you know, a bunch of lazy people will... Uh, it's just uh, take it. So you basically have this scheme where what happens is that you have to go to work to get the money, which is it's not clear that that's how you help the poorest people. We worked with some women who were, who had been abandoned by their husbands and had with small children. How do they go to work? Where do the children go? So they were not using these schemes. And as a, as a result, they were, you know, instead they were begging, basically. And 
the loss of dignity from that seems extraordinarily costly. Nobody will have to be at that. Nobody needs to be beg- begging. I think that's not, that's, that, does, that I think most countries can achieve and we should try to achieve. Um, you're the youngest uh, Nobel laureate in economics. Um, were you uh, surprised when this happened or the people had been talking about it, but um, were you surprised when you got the call? Surprise might be the understatement of the year. <laughs> I was flabbergasted, floored. I was like, what? I'm much too young for this. <laughs> what about you? Um, I, well, I mean, you know, I, I, I also thought, bizarre as it might seem to you, I also thought well, I was too young. <laughs> I think what, what is the only reason that this could happen is that this is not a price just for the three of us, the two of us and Michael Kramer, but this is a price for a whole movement of people who really have tried to go back to the field and understand the problem of the poor in detail and try out solutions without ever being too convinced that they might work in the absence of data and then move from the data to go to the next solution. And that is much, much broader than us. That's embodied by now hundreds and hundreds of researchers and thousands of projects. And I think that is a little bit what, what the Nobel Prize Committee tries to reward other than just any of us individually. Esther Duflo, Abhijit Banerjee, pleasure to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. And we will be back. My book of the week is Impeachment, a Handbook by Charles Black. This brief book, really just an essay, was written by a law professor during Nixon's downfall, but is the best guide for the layperson, mixing deep constitutional knowledge with abundant common sense. My favorite example of the latter is when explaining why something that is not technically a crime could still be an impeachable offense, Black explains that if the president were to move to Saudi Arabia so he could have four wives and were to propose to conduct the office of the presidency by mail and wireless from there, this would not be a crime, provided his passport were in order, but it would surely be grounds for impeachment. Now, I want to tell you about two upcoming chances to see my documentaries. On Monday, tune into CNN at 11 p.m. Eastern to see my CNN special report, Presidents on Trial, an Inside Look at Impeachment. It's a timely look at the historic week we just witnessed and an in-depth examination of our past, Clinton, Nixon, and even Andrew Johnson. And next Sunday, viewers in the U.S. should tune in to the regular GPS time when you can catch my other recent special report, Scheme and Scandal Inside the College Admissions Crisis. International viewers can catch it at 7 a.m., 3 p.m., 10 p.m. Eastern next Sunday. Thanks to all of you for being part of my program this week. Merry Christmas and happy holidays to all of you. I will see you in the new year.